Hey, everybody, and welcome to season two of the All About Everest podcast. And I'm your host, Pauline Reynolds Nuttall. On this podcast, you can get anything and everything about Mount Everest, including interviews, book recommendations, tips, updates, and a whole lot more. So welcome to the spring 2023 Everest climbing season. And here we go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast episode, which is an interview with the German mountaineer Joost Kobusch. If you've been following the podcast from the very beginning in 2022 in January and February, I followed a portion of his Everest journey during his second attempt to climb Mount Everest in winter. The thing about him is that he's attempted to climb Mount Everest twice. He will be attempting again in 2023, but his journey is a little bit different than most people. First of all, he's attempting to do it in winter alpine style with no sherpa support no fixed ropes and no oxygen when i asked him why he was doing it this way i absolutely loved his answer and let me tell you it's not for any type of record i really enjoyed my interview with him because there's a purity to his style of mountaineering and it's very unique his whole perspective comparatively to the commercialization of mountaineering right now specifically when it comes to Mount Everest. I'll go ahead and apologize ahead of time the interview is a little glitchy here and there and it's just because there was a poor internet connection at times for Yost just because of where he lives. And we're lucky that we had such a good internet connection comparatively. When I record these interviews, you have to remember some of these people, you know, don't have the best service. They're not always at home with Starlink or really awesome fiber optics. And hopefully, when we have Yost back because we're going to do this again in December during his Everest attempt. Hopefully uh, the service will be just as good then as it was today. Not a lot of housekeeping stuff today. I have no idea what next week's episode is going to be about. I don't currently have any interviews scheduled, but that could change Summer is super busy for a lot of people. And what I have realized is that for mountaineering, there is no season. Depending on when your project is, you could be either really busy or not. If I do not have an interview for next week's episode, it's very likely it will be a review, in my opinion, of the docuseries Finding Michael that came out earlier this year. I mentioned this last week, but I've been adding a poll to the Spotify episodes. You can only see it on Spotify and it's a really cool feature and option. Last week's question was, do you think skipping the Kumbu Icefall would be considered cheating? 38% of you said yes and 63% of you said no. 
So in my interview with Adrian Bollinger, we had discussed this a little bit. And he said, for safety reasons, it should absolutely be allowed that you can circumvent completely the Kumbu icefall with helicopters because so many deaths occur in the icefall. And the other thing that he said that kind of stuck with me was that mountaineering really isn't a sport. There's no rules, right? It's not like baseball, basketball, football. There's no rules. So it's not cheating if there are no rules. And if it's for safety, absolutely, uh, you should be able to circumvent it. So I thought that was interesting. Today's question and poll, I want to do a map in my office. And I want to stick little pin push pins in it for everyone that I've talked to for the podcast, wherever they are in the world. So my question is, should it be the country that they originated from or the country that they're in when I talk to them? So let me know, especially if you listen to this on Spotify, you can also leave comments for me on Spotify regarding this episode if the poll is already closed and it's open for seven days. I think the only thing I have left to mention for housekeeping stuff is that the Patreon should be completely up to date by this Sunday, hopefully in the evening. That's the project that I'm will be working on this weekend and have been working on throughout the week. Uh, be sure to check it out and you will find the link in the comments. And that's it. Here we go for the rest of today's episode. I really hope that you guys enjoyed this interview. His take on mountaineering is fresh, especially with all of these young people out there. A lot of them that all, well, it just seems that all that they're looking for is not necessarily the art of mountaineering and the art of climbing Mount Everest. It's more of the fame and bragging rights when it comes to records. And some of them have even forgotten that spirit of mountaineering, that romanticism, the adventure of what it used to be. If you read some of the older books that were published pretty much before the 90s, there was just something special about the chase for the mountains. And in my interview with Jason Black, I, we touched on that a lot. And so this interview with Yost, there's a feel of that. There's a fear. There's a feel of that rawness and that pureness of mountaineering that you don't really see anymore. So here we go for the rest of the episode. Before I get to the rest of the episode, thenomadic.com wants to offer our listeners 10% off with the code Everest at checkout. If you haven't heard me mention it before, I am a subscriber to the Nomadic subscription box. It's a monthly or quarterly subscription box for people who are outdoorsy, and it usually contains three to five different pieces of gear bigger gear of course for the quarterly box smaller gear for the monthly box as low as $29.99 per month you can also purchase previous boxes 
or any of the gear when you go to their website. This month's box was summer barbecue. That was the theme. And it included a Fuzzy drink capsule can cooler, the Exploria stainless steel foldable grill, the Fossil snap fold flex cutting boards, the to-go wear bamboo utensil set, and the Desert Provisions Camp Salt tin, which was a mix of salt and hatch green chilies. You can find a link in the podcast description. Hi, Yost, and welcome to the All About Everest podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Yost, where where are you right now in the world? Mm, I'm in the French Alps in Chamonix, and I'm very pleased with the internet connection today because it's unusually good. <laughs> and Yost... How long have you been climbing? How how did you get into mountaineering? Uh, yeah, you know, originally I'm from a very flat path of Germany, um, which right now is like a thousand kilometers to the north. And um, when I was 12, I joined the local climbing group in my school. And uh, that was in sixth grade. And um, then from there, from there on, it, it really took off. And what is your style of mountaineering? It's a little bit different than what is more common right now. Hmm. Okay, so because I grew up in an area where there are not so like many mountaineers because there are no mountains, I always had a hard time finding good partners. Also, you have to know I, I come from a big family. I have five sisters. Um, so my father is a carpenter. There was not so much money there. and that was a thing that made it difficult for me to find partners. Um, but then again, also you have to like find the right person, have the same goals, work together, like um, be a good match basically. And that was really difficult for me. So I started to do a lot of solo mountaineering. And nowadays my big projects are, are all solo projects. I do climb with other people, especially in training and some project I do with other people. But if a mountain is, let's say, on a difficulty level where I don't need a partner, I prefer to go alone. And what was your most recent project that you did solo? In February, I climbed Denali. Okay. And tell us a little bit about that and the reason why you decided to climb Denali. Uh, so I guess the reason is because in the alpinism that I do, I look for true wilderness. I look for these like archaic places, like really, yeah, where you're like out there and you lie, you rely on your skill um, and you rely on your skill to survive. Um, at the same time, I do enjoy the journey into the unknown. So I like to try projects that are seemingly impossible and nobody has done them yet because then you don't know if it's possible. And that uncertainty, that's um, the essence of exploration. That's the essence of adventure. And that's what I'm looking for in the alpinism that I do. I, 
I try to be like these explorers I was reading about as a child, you know, these guys that go to the end of the world into some jungle where nobody has ever been before. Like, that's what I want to do in alpinism. So um, Denali is great for that, especially in winter, because nobody is there in winter. You have the whole mountain to yourself. It's, I mean, conditions are interesting, definitely. <laughs> I mean, it's dark, it's extremely cold. Um, once the airplane drops you there, you're on your own. And the objective was to climb the Messner couloir in winter, which had never been done before. So that was uh, what really was driving me. And you were successful and you did it all by yourself with or without oxygen. Uh, in these small mountains like Denali, uh, I don't think people use oxygen. I think it would be crazy to use oxygen. <laughs> so no, I didn't use any oxygen, any bottled oxygen. Of course I was breathing, um, but that's it. So no team, no fixed rope, just you in the mountain. I do have a team. They just don't join me on the mountain. Um, so like I, I perform solo, but back home, I have a coach, I have a manager, I work with physiotherapists. Um, and so there is a team. Um, and for example, my girlfriend, she sent me weather reports via satellite. So there is some kind of support, but it's just on the mountain, I rely totally on my skills. We first heard about you in 2015 during, uh, right after the avalanche at EBC. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Hmm. So after high school, I thought, okay, it would be cool to become a professional mountaineer, but let's be honest, that's kind of uh, impossible. <laughs> so be realistic focus on something, you know, like maybe studying medicine and then you could specialize in alpine medicine, like maybe do mountain rescue, um, to join some high altitude expeditions. You could make this your job and you could combine your passion. That's That was my path of thinking. And also I felt like um, my parents and my, I don't know, friends, my surrounding would approve of this path more than me just going somewhere with no money, climbing mountains. Um, and so um, I thought to myself, before I start this journey of um, yeah, studying medicine, I want to climb an 8,000 meter peak. Um, and so um, I was on this journey to climb my first 8,000 meter peak. Like I first climbed a couple of other peaks, like I went to Kyrgyzstan, climbed to 6,000 or there, went to Nepal, tried to climb an 8,000, but basically realized I didn't have enough money. So climbed to 6,000, saved up money, worked with my yeah, first partner sponsors. Um, and then 2015, I finally managed to attempt my first 8,000 meter peak, which was Lhotse. It's like the little brother of Everest. It's the same base camp than Everest. But um, the peak is uh, 8,500 meters tall. So it's a bit smaller, but way cheaper to climb. And so I ended up in Everest Base Camp in 2015. 
Uh, you were frozen for a second. Yeah, so were you. I think it probably recorded it, though. It usually does. Uh, you were saying that you were at EVC and you were about to climb Lofty before it froze. So I was in the base camp and I carried, back then I already started this solo approach. So I carried all my loads myself. I didn't have any support. Seventy percent identical route than Everest, and um, I was sitting in the base camp, just having another breakfast. Um, and I decided not to go up that day because didn't feel right. I, I was still tired, and um, so slowly some friends came into the base camp, and I had breakfast with them. You have to know, I shared my base camp with other people to reduce the cost. So there were also other people on the expedition. And slowly they arrived. And while we were talking about conditions and so on, what like mountaineers can talk endlessly about conditions. So <laughs> suddenly the table started to move. And I still remember um, the first words of my friend Taro um, were earthquake. And I thought, okay, he's Japanese. He's probably experienced a lot of earthquakes in his life. So it must be an earthquake. But I mean, I had never experienced an earthquake. So I was super excited. I was like, yoo-hoo, an earthquake, cool. Um, so I went outside the tent. I took out my iPhone. I, I filmed a bit. I was just like, this is amazing. You're like, you're, you're like standing on the ground, but the ground is moving like you're on a little sailboat. And um it's it's making all this noise, like as if you were inside a big truck engine and you have all this vibration and it's like roaring and it's echoing around you and it's really noisy. And I was looking towards Everest, but you couldn't see anything. It was like kind of cloudy, foggy, um, I guess, because all the particles of snow like would be like shaken into the air or something. And um, suddenly I see these people in front of me and they run away. And I'm wondering like, what are they running away from? And I turn around and there's this gigantic avalanche just like coming towards me. And uh, yeah, it was really like a, a tsunami of ice. And your video that you took, it went viral because that was one of the only videos of the actual avalanche. Yeah, it just happened by chance because I was so excited to film the earthquake before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, earthquakes are cool until they're not. But they're fun, like the first time you experience them, that's for sure. Um, and so after 2015, um, what made you decide to go back to Everest? And what did your first project look like? Okay, so this is quite a long journey. I will I will take you through this journey now a bit. You have to interrupt if I, if it's too long. But okay, basically the big revelation after 2015 was, first of all, to survive this avalanche was like a rebirth, and it, to me it became okay. 
to fail doing something. I guess a big part of me was afraid to fail being a professional mountaineer because there's like, it's not a clear path. If you study medicine, you know, you, you go to university and then you just follow whatever they say and then you become a doctor. It's very easy, actually. You just have to work hard, but you don't have to like figure everything out. In professional mountaineering, there's no such path. There's no manual. It's just like you have to figure out how to become a professional. Um, and I was really afraid of that not working and also of like not having social security and all these things. So big takeaway from this avalanche was like, okay, look, if it doesn't work being a professional mountaineer, you can always study medicine, but you could have been dead now. So um, like failure compared to death, like is nothing. So just try and see where it leads you. So that was a big decision. I I turned pro after that. After that. Um, yeah, you would say failure, but for me, it was actually a very positive um, event. And the second thing was, I realized that um, when I was climbing Lhotse, there were all these other people and I also used the same route that they would uh, with all these fixed ropes and so on. So I um, realized that it was not really a solo climb and I wanted to dive more into solo climbing. And um, that's why in 2016, I decided to climb Annapurna 1, which is the most rarely climbed 8,000 meter peak in the world. For good reason, it's also the most uh, lethal one. When I attempted it, it was uh, having a death rate of 33%. So climbing Annapurna 1, I, I'm really going fast through this now until Everest, because <laughs> climbing Annapurna 1, I realized there were still 20 other climbers there. It was not a thousand like on Everest, but there were these 20 others. I mean, I was the rookie there. I never climbed an 8,000 meter peak. Everybody else was a complete pro. I climbed at least a couple of 8,000ers, um, but I learned a lot. And um, I realized that I, I wanted more untouched. The 20 was still too much for me. Um, and so in 2017, I. Um, yeah, of course, maybe I should mention I, I I successfully summited Annapurna 1 and everything went well. Um, but after that, I felt like I wanted to develop further. So in 2017, I uh, climbed Nangpai Gosam 2, which at the time was the highest unclimbed mountain of Nepal. So now it was a virgin peak. Nobody was there. And there was this big question mark, like, is it even possible? Because like, if mountains are unclimbed, it's for a reason. And since nobody had been there, uh, there was always this doubt and this element of exploration, which I really, really enjoyed. And out of that project, um, which I also managed to successfully yeah, realize, out of that project, the Everest Winter Project was born. Because then I was asking myself, how can I? Um, put this kind of experience on an 8,000 meter peak. Um, so I thought, okay, what could be the ultimate, the ultimate challenge like um, that would at the same time be a journey into the unknown, um, experiencing wilderness and this rawness 
And uh, I came up with climbing Everest in the winter when nobody is there. Yeah, I did an interview with um, someone else previously with Gabby Nell, and she said that climbing Everest in the fall even is a completely different experience because there's there's nobody there. And um, a lot of people are saying that that might be the best time to climb is the fall and the winter because it's almost pristine. It's absolutely empty. So tell us about your first attempt to climb Mount Everest in the wintertime. So 2019, I went there the first time and um, intuitively I felt like it's probably possible, but I don't really know. So that was already like, I was a bit nervous about it. And I was really hoping that I could find a way there. There was another German uh, professional mountaineer and we did uh, like a TV documentary together before um, I left. Is he right? Maybe is it is it that hard to like just even do the first bit? Because you have to know I'm climbing the West Ridge. I'm also not climbing the normal route. And the route that I chose is a technical one. It starts with rock climbing, vertical rock climbing. Then there is ice climbing. There is mixed climbing. It's climbing like it's it's not comparable to the normal route on Everest. Like I'm using two ice tools and picking my way up there. And I still remember there was a bit of doubt in my mind when I, when I departed for that expedition. But I also feel like if you don't have this tiny bit of doubt, then probably the project is too easy. And on that when when you're going through the West Ridge, you completely circumvent the Kumbu Ice Fell. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So if you are in Everest Base Camp and you're looking up towards Everest, there is the ice fall that would be like a probably straight ahead. But I'm turning really towards the left, towards Lola, which is a pass that leads towards Tibet. And so I'm climbing up there and unimaginably this was used like kind of centuries ago for people to travel, to go to Tibet, to like exchange goods. But now the glacier is gone. So it's a, a rocky phase. Um, there is uh, some danger of ice and rock fall in there. It's not super stable. It's a pretty hostile environment. And did on your first attempt, did you have any particular very scary experience that happened? that you were almost like, I'm going to turn around, I'm making a mistake? Mm, a couple. So maybe we go through them <laughs> in a particular <laughs> order. So chronologically. Well, I guess, which one was the scariest on that first attempt? Okay, the scariest. The scariest was on the last day of the first attempt. I had uh, successfully reached uh, the, the west shoulder, which was at 7,400 meters approximately. And now I'm descending. I'm 
I'm tired. Um, I had an injury in my foot and stomach issues. And I collected all the gear and I went down. And just the, that last bit before you're back on the moraine, like that leads towards the base camp, there is this overhanging granite cliff, which is like three pitches, approximately 100 meters. And um, when I climbed the route, I had a rope soloed it up. So I, I kind of solo climbed it, but I use a rope. So in case I fall, I don't die. It's not pleasant, but it's it works. And it was pretty hard climbing. Um, and so now I'm rappelling. So I'm hanging in the rope, um, like over this slightly overhanging cliff. And uh, I'm like, in the air, I'm not touching the rock, but at some point later on, I would be coming to a little ledge and then change into a different rope and continue the rappel. But um, like way before I reached the ledge, I could hear this rumbling like a thunder, like, uh, and uh, I was just like, okay, shit, up there, there is a huge Serac. And um, it's like a funnel. So everything that breaks will go through this funnel and it will go right over me, over this cliff. And I could already see this kind of cloud forming at the edge of the cliff over me, um, this kind of dust um, wave, this kind of pressure wave that's coming before the avalanche. And then it's just like going through a checklist. Check number one, did I ever get hit by a rock or by ice at this position? No, it's pretty overhanging. So everything that falls down, like falls over me. Okay, so I there's no chance to die from impact. Check number two, can I be buried here in the avalanche and suffocate? No, I'm hanging free fall, like I'm hanging in this cliff. So there's no chance to be buried. So, okay, check number two. So I think nothing can happen. So just relax. Take a deep breath and stay calm so that you lose, you use way less oxygen. Um, and uh, yeah, just wait, basically. So I took this deep breath and then the, the kind of shockwave of the avalanche hit me. The, the avalanche was shooting over the cliff, but it still creates this like high air pressure shockwave, um, refined snow particles, and suddenly, I wasn't hanging straight in the line anymore. I was hanging at like a 45 degrees and holding to it. And at that moment I was thinking, shit, what if the rope breaks? I was just like, okay, I hope the rope doesn't rip. I hope the rope doesn't rip apart. Uh, um, and I stayed calm and it was a bit, the experience was a bit like, um, maybe you know these videos where somebody's showering and somebody puts some extra shampoo on their head and they try to shower it all off, but it just doesn't come off. Just felt like that. It's just very unpleasant. <laughs> so and, I think that was probably the worst experience. And how far did you get on your first attempt? How high up did you make it? I made it to like 7,380 uh, meters. And that's exactly the west shoulder. And why did you decide to turn around that first attempt? So um, it took me a lot of time to figure out the first part of the route, uh, like 
a lot of time. And when I finally was in a position to go much higher, the winter was almost over and um, turning around there was one of the last winter days. And I had set myself the goal to reach 7,000 meters um, and I already overachieved. And at the same time, I was slightly injured and I didn't feel 100%. So I felt like it was enough. And then when was your second attempt? So two years later, I had my second attempt, um, 2021-22. So I defined winter from 22nd of December until 28th of February. So usually my uh, attempts fall into two years. And when I attempted it the second time, I, it was a completely different atmosphere. I was certain this project is going to work somehow because I knew the route by now. I was way more confident about what I was doing there. And um, when I attempted Everest there, I was also much, much faster. This lower part that was like an enigma to me in the beginning, I had it all figured out. And I uh, also changed the route after this very unpleasant avalanche experience in a way that um, I would now have only a 30 to 60 second exposure towards this um, funnel. And I wouldn't just repel underneath the funnel in this cliff, which had the better rock quality, but I figured out a different way that seemed way safer and turned out to be way safer. And I followed you last year during your attempt, and I think I even talked about it on the podcast. Um, you had some very unpleasant experiences with gear during this attempt. Yeah, I don't think it was the gear. It was the wind. I had <laughs> unpleasant experiences with the wind. The gear, luckily, was was good because otherwise it would have been much more unpleasant. Um, I mean, you probably saw my um, the night that I spent at 6,000 meters. So what happened was... The second attempt of Everest was uh, like, it was super fast. Within two weeks, I reached um, like an altitude that took me, I think, triple the time or um, even longer that I reached only towards the end of the expedition on the first try. Um, I just went up, up, up and it, everything looked super good. But then the jet stream hit the mountain. And the jet stream, I mean, usually only airplanes travel in there those winds can reach easily 200 250 kilometers an hour and now i had these constant 200 kilometers of, uh, per hour of wind hitting the summit and that also meant that there was quite some wind hitting the lower part of everest and so i was um i wasn't so sure if i should go up and so on so i waited for really the best window i could find i waited for like two weeks or something. And when I went up to sleep at 6,000 meters, then yeah, um, at nighttime, my, my tent went into various yoga positions until it completely was torn apart and the pole snapped. And yeah, it was only, there were probably only a hundred kilometers uh, per hour of wind. Um, but that was enough to rip my tent to shreds. And then I was wrapping myself into the tent sheet and just um, 
kind of playing human anchor and trying to, yeah, trying not to fly away with the tent because that's actually cause of death. Um, I, I didn't know this before, but I told this story afterwards to somebody from the Himalayan database and they said, oh yeah, yeah, we have a few of these records where people are just blown off with their tent in a storm and they all died kind of. And I was just like, yeah, I kind of knew that I didn't want to be blown off, but it's good that I didn't hear the stories before. Oh my gosh. And on this last attempt, how high did you reach? How far did you get? 6,450. So like almost a thousand meters lower than the first attempt, but there was no chance. Look, I like one time I, I thought maybe I could go up and I walked to the base camp. Now you have to know on the second attempt, I didn't use the base camp anymore. I stayed in the village and I minimized my approach completely. So there was no like tent city or anything pitched in the base camp. I just stayed in a lodge and I walked an additional eight kilometers every time. So now I'm walking to the base camp and I'm not even at the base camp and the wind's already so strong that I'm like blown over and I like have to go down. Otherwise I, I fall. And I mean, then you just like, I'm not going up. It's going to be worse. It's going to be way, way worse up there. And um, so what, when are you planning your next attempt to do this again? Because your your project's not done. Uh, give me a second. It's just I pulled out the plaque from from my microphone. Too deep in the story. Oh. <laughs> Let's hope. All right. So. Uh, where were we? Oh, uh, that uh, you're getting blown over when you're heading back to the lodge. And then I asked you when you're going to try this again, because obviously your project's not done. Yeah. So surprise, I will try again end of this year. And what are some of the things that you're going to... Uh, that you're thinking of changing in this next approach? Mm. So I developed a tent um, and I had tested that prototype already during two winter Everests. And now I'm refining it and I'm producing more of these prototypes um, and definitely going to use that tent more. So um, it's a construction that is designed for high wind speeds, um, uh, still And um, gear-wise, I'm also developing a few new textile prototypes together with Black Yak um, because I do believe that it also needs a gear evolution in order to tackle the challenge. Of course, like as an athlete, I need to become somebody who is ready, who has built skill. Um, but I also need to build gear and those two things go hand in hand. So I'm definitely working on the gear section. I'll also bring a prototype tent for the base camp because even in the base camp, I lost two tents 
the last winter attempt that were just ripped apart. Um, so gear-wise, that's definitely a change, but then um, tactical-wise, there is no big change. Like I know the route now, and the last route that I chose worked pretty well. Um, it's just gonna be about, um, yeah, good weather, picking, like <laughs> not picking the right window, but maybe, um, I don't believe in luck, but uh, maybe in this case it's luck. <laughs> maybe it's just, yeah, uh, having a chance for a good weather window. Hopefully the winds won't be as crazy as they were last time. That is some pretty severe winds. That's absolutely, yeah. I mean, those winds are the limiting factor. It can be minus 60 degrees. If there is no wind, that could be a summit window. But if it's minus 40 and there is wind of 40 kilometers an hour, that might already be too much wind, you know? So it's really, it's a fine balance. But I do believe that the route that I chose um, offers more shelter from the wind in the higher parts. That's also why I think this route could work really well for the summit push. It's a really direct way. And the Hornbein couloir is, is a couloir. So I, I believe, I hope right now that it's a good choice, but I'm really excited to find out. So the next expedition is really all about trying to reach 8,000 meters, trying to have a, like a look, a glance into the Hornbein because nobody knows how it looks like in winter. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, maybe I'm there and I look up and I don't know, it's only blue ice. And I feel like, okay, in winter, this thing is like way too hard. Maybe I look up there and that's what I believe right now. And, and I feel reassured in my assumptions that it's gonna be good. So that's really exciting. It, it is really exciting and you know, the way that you're doing it and the reason why you're doing it is exciting as well. Because um, like you said at the beginning of the interview, like it's just essentially you and the mountain and the wilderness, which is an experience that's really hard to find nowadays, especially, you know, spring season on Everest, doesn't matter what side you're on. There's so many people there or some of the other mountains. And what, what does your family think about this, about your mm. adventures? <laughs> mm. I I feel like when I was growing up, they were like a bit skeptical. They were just like, why can't you play um, soccer like the normal kids do? <laughs> um, but now I think they're proud. I think they more and more... I I already achieved things, you know, they, they are proud. They are like, um, yeah, they're happy for me. And of course they're worried. Yeah, mountaineering, professional mountaineering is a very dangerous job and it's not something that everybody chooses. I mean, yeah. You know, Annapurna in itself is very dangerous. And we learned that this year with um, one of the fatalities that, you know, you could have all the experience in the world and yet 
with the wrong conditions or luck, right? Not having enough luck sometimes. Um, it's it can get pretty scary. So yeah. and do you have and besides Everest, um, do you have any other small well, you just did Denali. Do you have any other projects that you're going to attempt before your um Everest attempt in December? Climbing a lot here in Chamonix. Um, I do follow um, a few like guidebooks. So, I mean, here in the French Alps, there, there is very steep and tall granite, beautiful routes. And there is a book uh, published by Philippe Batou. He is a, a local mountain guide who is instructing mountain guides. Um, very experienced. And he published this book, The 100 Most Beautiful Routes in Rock, Ice and Snow here. And so whenever I can, I try to climb one of these routes. There are like some pretty hard routes in there. Um, and um, so um, and then there's another book that I do follow, um, which is kind of, it was the Bible for extreme climbing, like in the 70s. It also has 100 routes all over the Alps. So it's just like trying to climb a few of these routes, um, then just climbing many 4,000 meter peaks here, paragliding off their summits, um, working on paragliding skills. These are really all personal achievements. Um, and I, I do enjoy them a lot, but it's nothing worth moving. And uh, last but not least, where can we find you online? Mm, so you can find me on Instagram. Um, I have a website. Uh, whenever I do big expeditions, uh, the website has a newsroom and there is a live tracking where you can follow the expedition and the coming Everest expedition will have a 3D live tracking again. So you can follow the expedition 3D. It's a bit like Google Earth, but better. Joost, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and we wish you luck and we will be following you this, this winter. Yeah, cool. Maybe we have another podcast from the base camp. We should do that for sure. Let, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Until then, huh? Yep. And that's it for today's podcast episode. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Yost. I know that I did, and I can't wait to re-interview him in December from EBC when he attempts uh to summit Mount Everest again. You can follow him online, Facebook, Instagram, and his live tracker. It's pretty cool to follow him and see where he's at on the mountain when he's on these expeditions. I followed him last year on his Everest expedition on his live tracking and as well as Denali. And I will probably do it again when he makes his attempt at the end of this year. On his Facebook, he has some really cool videos of the tent that he mentioned, how it was flapping. And until he mentioned it, I didn't realize that people could actually like fly off of the mountain and die. That was an eye-opening moment for me. Until next week, climb your own climb. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the All About Everest podcast. 
we would love it if you would rate, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find us on social media at All About Everest Podcast or at Mama Bear Outdoors. You can support our podcast by subscribing to our Patreon or by buying us a coffee. Until next time.